welcome to the Nerd Party. It's not working. How long since you've cleaned the heads? The what? The heads. Do you have any alcohol? To drink? What? No, no, to clean it. Check the tracking. The rental place closes in two hours. Shut up, shut up. It's working. Time for a retro perspective. Hello and welcome to Retro Perspective, the show on the nerd party where we take a look at all of the movies released 25 years ago this week or last week or the week before. Last. One of those weeks. It's one of those weeks that we were something. We're getting caught up. We're yeah. working on it. You know, we still got plenty of time. It's like it's like real life, you know? Yeah. All these movies come out. And you want to go see them, and sometimes you don't get to go see them. But luckily, in 1994, movies stuck around for a lot longer than they do today. So They did indeed, and that will come into play uh, in a couple of weeks when we're talking about the releases on November 18th. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So this week, we're talking about October 28th, 1994, and there were five movies which were released this week. Yes. Yeah. The first one, number 17 at the box office with $0.4 million and a f- kind of surprising 14% on Rotten Tomatoes, Drop Squad. Um, this is a movie uh, starring Eric LaSalle of yeah. ER fame, the guy who does the the punch thing in the mm-hmm. opening credits, you know, that guy? Yep. Mm-hmm. And he's also in Logan and stuff. Uh, It stars him. And it was produced by Spike Lee. And it seemed like, you know, a pretty pretty interesting concept. But, uh, yeah, 14%. That's not too good. I got to be honest that looking at the trailer, I'm not entirely surprised. I have a feeling that this is one of those ones where the, the... Intent was good, but the execution did not please people. Yeah. yeah. That's how I'm reading it. Yeah. That could be. That could be. It's about like a guy who, well, a, a black guy who seems to be, I don't know, turning his back on his culture in favor of, you know, succeeding and. Yeah, he's like a successful ad guy, and so he gets kidnapped by the Drop Squad to remind him of the culture from which he came and the yeah. one that was important. Um, which, you know, I mean, the thing is, you know, a, a lot of movies in the 90s had to do with that sort of thing about, like, what's your identity in the modern world? I mean, you know, that sort of, like, continues on. But uh, it was definitely a, a theme in the 90s. Yeah, I mean, it's something that Spike Lee dealt with uh, on a few occasions. I mean, yeah. look like um, Bamboozled, for example. You know, that's pretty... Yep, funny. yep. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Oh, well, it's disappointing that it's it's apparently not better, but I haven't seen it. I'm assuming you haven't seen it either, right? Nah. That one was a little... Uh, once I saw the trailer, I kind of knew that wasn't going to be the one for me this week. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, number 14 at the box office, making $1.5 million. And I guess the big winner this week with 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, surprisingly, Squanto, A Warrior's Tale. Mm-hmm. Boy, 
these were the live action movies that Disney was making back in the 90s. Yes. It's kind of crazy. I mean, it's not, to me, it's not crazy that they went from Squanto to Avengers Endgame. What's crazy to me is that they ever made Squanto in the first place. But did they really go from Squanto to Avengers Endgame, or did they go from acquiring a studio that was going to make Avengers Endgame regardless? I mean, I I think we were going to get to Avengers Endgame anyway. It's just that the resources made it much more palatable than well, maybe, what we but otherwise, maybe. But but to me, like I mean, the thing with with Disney is they are that behemoth, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole thing is they hire the best talent or they acquire the best talent and Pixar becomes a Disney property or whatever. And it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, it's not like it's not like everything has to be grown from like the inside. But there was so much of that to begin with that now, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of like those uh, the, the, the newspaper from uh, Citizen Kane where. He goes and he sees all the people who are working at the paper across the street or whatever, and he's like, I'm going to get all these guys. And then he does. That's that's Disney, right? Yes, it is. But just the idea that they were like, well, yeah, I mean, like, Squanto, that seems like a solid release for us. Like, now, like, you know, think of all the movies that... And now, you know, you hear like, oh, they're making Ant-Man 3. or, Or, you know, Solo... You know the success of the, the 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 lack of success of Solo, right? I mean, which was still like a profitable movie and everything. I'm assuming, right? But like, they look at Solo, they look at the business that it does, and they're like, "Eh, we're not going to do any of these Star Wars stories anymore." You know, whereas like back in the day, like you put Solo up against Squanto, and it's like, okay. You know what I mean? I do. I see. I see your point, um, and I think that it it is interesting, especially because their whole business model is still informed by the idea of remind everybody that Disney exists and please come to our theme parks. Yeah, I mean, and that. But I mean, when you break it down that way, which I think is very apt, their investment in the idea of being the behemoth is much more profitable to their theme park sales and stuff like that, which is something that still cracks me up because I went to Universal um, this past weekend and I realized as I was in Krusty Land Arcade that once again, the Simpsons, they're a property now owned by Disney. Yes. And they're at Universal Studios. Like Universal Studios basically... Has all of these properties, including like Deadpool merchandise that yep. Disney makes the movies, and Universal is just sitting there like, "Hey, no risk, but uh, hey, we got the characters, so spend some money over here." It's crazy how Universal has carved this niche of just sort of eating the tiniest little bit of Disney's lunch that way. Mm-hmm. I, I find it humorous. Yeah, yeah. I hope that you know, like Disney takes all that stuff back so that Universal can open up like a Josie and the Pussycats roller coaster or something like that. Or well, I hope they just take it uh, as a soul-searching moment to open a good Fast and Furious ride. Yeah. 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 That'd be pretty cool. Or yeah. 
or I don't know, make a Transformers movie so that ride seems at least marginally related to anything happening in cinema right now. But, you know, <laughs> that's just me. I don't know. You know, like like the you think of like Test Track, like Test mm-hmm. Track is like Fast and Furious. Like that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'm not the world's biggest Test Track fan, but sure. Oh, I, I love Test Track. I know. I know. I have a Favorite. lot of friends that love Test Track, but it's that's my that's my skip. That's my guaranteed skip. I would rather go to Mission Space. I've only done the the wimpy version of Mission Space. I, oh, the intense version of Mission Space is awesome. I, I, I mean, you know, you hear stories about people just like passed out, you know, outside of there, or just like <sighs> vomiting everywhere. No, it's not that bad. Okay. I, You know, I don't know. I mean, Test Track, I, I really like. Um, I, I like the idea of, well, just just like it being sort of realistic, and you know, obviously, then you're just going fast. My my friend wrote it, and he was like, "I can't take it." He's like, "Roller coasters and everything are fine," but he's like, "That he couldn't take because he felt like he wasn't in control. He felt like he was in the passenger seat." And he's like, "If they gave me like a steering wheel that I could hold on to, so that I'd have the illusion that I was driving the car." I it, it, I would like it a lot more because I wouldn't feel like I'm it's out of my hands. That is fascinating. Yeah. Because boy, I'd love to know what roller coasters he's ridden because like you go on Mako over at SeaWorld and if you think you're out of control on Test Track, that first mm-hmm. hill on Mako, that to this day that puts my heart in my shoes. Yeah. So like the like for me the fun of a roller coaster is the fact that you are out of control. Yeah. That's there's nothing you can do. There's that there's that baseline fear, my god, if anything goes wrong, I'm done. <laughs> I can't change anything about my fate. Yep. Huh. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway. But Squanto would not have written ridden roller coasters. Um, no. No. I, you know, I had no interest in this to begin with just because it seemed like one of those Disney movies, which we've seen a billion times this year already and, you know, whatever. But then I think it was on IMDb. It was either IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes. I think IMDb, but I, I was like reading like a description of it. And I don't know who wrote the description, but it starts off with um, a historically inaccurate retelling yeah. of yes. <laughs> And I'm like, whoa, okay, well, what's going on here then? I don't know, but it doesn't sound good. Yeah, so. but I, you know, that that's the funny thing. That that in and of itself, I, I I read the same thing. That in and of itself gets to, you know, nobody thinks to open up Oliver Stone's JFK with a historically inaccurate retelling of the Kennedy assassination, because that's what that is. Even yeah. Born on the Fourth of July is a historically inaccurate retelling of Ron Kovacs' story. Yeah. Oh, well. So I don't know, man. They're yeah, all historically inaccurate. New, Muppet Newsflash: all all biopics and historical movies are historically inaccurate in some way. Yep, yep. It is what it is. It is. All right. So next up, number ten uh, with two million dollars at the box office and a twenty-two percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Silent Fall. Okay. Um, this is 
a movie which doesn't look tremendously good. Mm-hmm. True. About uh, an autistic boy who witnesses his parents' murder. Mm-hmm. And then Richard Dreyfus plays a therapist who needs to unlock yeah. uh, this kid's mind in mm-hmm. order to reveal its secrets or something. Yes. Right? Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, but see, here's the thing. I'm pretty sure this is the first movie written by Akiva Goldsman. Well, you're just selling the hell out of this one for me, though. Oh, second, because he did The Client first. So this is a second movie. Well, wait a minute. Second released? Or, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because are we going with... Are we going with release order or production order? I don't I, know. I, I'm, I, no, I'm, I'm totally kidding. I'm going with one of those semantic nonsense things that we love to go with as nerds. But like, no, you know, I there was that fascination in the 90s. I always go back to Mercury Rising starring Bruce Willis and hmm. Alec Baldwin, hmm. where once the term was updated to autistic and we are in the post Rain Man phase. There were a lot of movies that were obsessed, or seemingly a lot of movies, that were obsessed with the idea that autistic individuals were somehow um, Rubik's Cubes with feet, where yeah. if I could just figure out the right combination of words to say to them, I would know what they're saying. And it's like, that's not how that works. Yeah. Now, again, I could, uh, I could be pedantic and say it's a historically inaccurate retelling of how that works. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. There's just nothing really engaging about that premise to me because it's, again, it's treating an actual condition as a problem that can be solved. It's almost like the sitcom problem scenario where mm-hmm. it's no problem is so great that we can't solve it with two hours of plot devices. It's like, yeah, eh. yeah. I mean, it's 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 crazy, and you know, obviously, you know, whatever. We've come a long way from there, and, and <laughs> but uh, you know, this movie was directed by Bruce Beresford, who did Driving Miss Daisy. Mm-hmm. Perhaps another outdated. Uh, <laughs> Um, uh, masterpiece or something. Um, but you know, I mean, the cast is cool. Linda Hamilton, Liv Tyler, you know, JT Walsh. So I don't know. I, I wish I, I could have seen this movie, even though it looks really bad, but I just didn't have the time. I had better movies to watch. We'll see if you did. <laughs> All right. Well, number five at the box office with $3.4 million and 41% on Rotten Tomatoes, The Road to Wellville. Which got hammered when it came out by at least Ebert. I'm pretty sure Ebert didn't like this one. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when this movie came out. Mm -hmm. I remember the commercials and everything. All-star cast based on a real guy but probably a historically inaccurate retelling of the situation. Probably, but it seemed like it would be funny. I don't know. At the time, I, you know, when I was like 14 years old, I was like, this is a movie which I could see myself watching in the future. There was that. The big one was My Cousin Vinny. Yes. I remember seeing the commercials for that as a kid and thinking like, 
this looks like a good movie. I am going to see this when I'm older. And I still haven't seen it, but I want to still. Secret confession time. I've yeah. never seen it all the way through. Oh, well, we, we should we should uh, we should watch it then at some point. Uh, yes, we should. My parents, my mom in particular, for our our movie night, is like we should watch my cousin Vinny. We should watch my cousin Vinny. I don't know why she's so excited about this movie, and I'm like, you just watched this like a month ago, and she's like, no, I didn't. Why would you think that I watched this a month ago? And I'm like, because someone rented it on my iTunes account and it wasn't me. But, uh, you know, because I'm logged in on their their Apple TV as well. So, um, you know, someday I'll watch it. I mean, it's from the director of Clue. I loved Clue. Oh, the parts that I've seen are really funny. And it's great because it's Joe Pesci riffing on, you know, the type of character he's best known for. Yeah. And the ageless Ralph Macchio is in it. Um, and Marissa Tomei in her Oscar-winning performance. Which gave birth to endless conspiracy theories that she didn't actually win, but they didn't want to embarrass themselves and retract it, which we all know would not be the case thanks to what happened with Moonlight. Yeah. So I, that, that whole My Cousin Vinny thing, though, like I wonder if your mom, I think of that movie Conspiracy Theory. Is it is it a trigger for her, like um, Catcher in the Rye, where she watches it but never remembers that she watched it? And your mom's actually secretly programmed by the CIA? Oh, well, I think that's true with every movie that my mom has ever seen, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know. So many times. I'm like, she's like, I've never seen that. I'm like, yeah, you did. I watched it with you. You know, it's funny because uh, that actually reminds me of my wife because um, it's become a joke now where she never wants to quote unquote rewatch a movie she's seen before. So she never wants to sit down and watch a star Wars with movie with me again, or she never wants to watch this with me again or anything like that. And I will, I can say to her, tell me how it ends. And she will freeze and she has to sit there and think for a long time, or she can't tell me how it ends. And so my argument is, well, then it would be like watching it for the first time for you because you don't remember. (laughs) See, I, I like I, I'm with your wife in that regard. Like, if you were to ask me that about like almost any movie, I'd be like, I don't know, but I remember the feeling of watching it. You know, I remember mm. hating it, and because of that, I'm not excited about seeing this movie again. So, I'm both talking you about a, a, any movie, not any movie in particular. You know what I mean? So, both you and your mom are programmed by the CIA. Got it? I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, well, no. Well, one movie that she does remember watching vividly is the Manchurian Candidate. So you know, it's kind of ironic that's ironic. That, that is ironic. My goodness. <laughs> she's like, oh, oh my god, just <laughs> because she's got like a big thing against like torture. Like she just cannot handle it at all. Um, like the movie, which for some reason I don't know, just like really gives her a hard time is Cold Mountain. Because oh geez, like, I hate that movie so much. I hate that. I now that's a movie where I can't remember the ending, but I remember how much I hated it. Oh so my yeah, gosh, I hated that movie. I I like that movie, but like there's Mm-mm. a scene where like basically this woman is killed in front of her her grown yeah. kids. Yeah, and she's just like, I just can't handle that. And the funny thing about that is that like she read the book before seeing the movie. So, like, she had to have known that it was coming, but 
I don't know. Your your brain will all. This is like when I uh, with um, anything like even uh, misery or or other horror stuff. Your brain will automatically put in a limit to it. And, yeah. and sort of like protect you. Whereas with a movie, you're being forced to watch it. Yeah. So that in and of itself is sort of like the, the torture aspect to it, I guess. But uh, no, Cold Mountain. That Yeah, that's the one with uh, Inman. And he, uh, they say like, I love you three times and they're married or something. My wife. Jeez, when did that? I think that came. I mean, we saw that before we got married. Maybe Pretty sure it came out in yeah. 2003. Yeah, it was before we got married. And that one was... Yeah, that one was, oh, I, I got so, like halfway through, I looked at it, I was like, can I just go wait in the lobby? I can't stand this. From the director of The English Patient, so no wonder yeah. I didn't care for it. I, I like The English Patient, too. But I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, so so then Silent Fall. And not, oh, oh, we were talking about Road to Wellville at this point. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I can't believe that that's Anthony Hopkins, though, in that movie crazy i will say things like that this is the this is the one about kellogg right yeah uh i will say that i saw a documentary on the history channel one of the one hour ones that they did um and it was the history of cereal Mm -hmm. and that's that's the one thing with kellogg that's fascinating because the invention of cereal was because of him or at least people like him or whatever because we were moving from an, uh, a farming to an industrial society. And so cereal came about because people were still eating these big farm breakfasts. And so they were getting really heavy and they were getting constipated and stuff like that. And Kellogg was apparently like big about conquering constipation or whatever. But that's why like bran flakes and stuff, you know, it was like eat this for breakfast instead because it'll give you the nutrients you need without loading you up like eggs and bacon and sausage and toast and everything like that because you're not working in the fields anymore. So cereal was basically invented as a uh, a health fad, and now it's become, uh, well, I mean, a beautiful thing. I could eat it for three meals a day, honestly. So God bless you, Dr. Kellogg. Yeah, yeah, that's weird because you don't really think of like cereal as being something which is invented, but... I mean, mm-hmm. It makes sense yeah. when you say that. Uh, I mean, wasn't there something about like because I know that he was he was rather uh, out there with his theories and stuff, but there was yes. something about like cornflakes being somehow related to sexual dysfunction or something like that. I don't know about that, um, but I do know that cereal has gone on such a marvelous journey since its invention. Uh, and has so many wonderful uh, expressions uh, that it's become a true art form and includes marshmallows now, which it did not initially. Kellogg believed that cornflakes, I don't know, prevented or or deterred masturbation. So there you go. Do we have to bleep that on this network? I don't think so. It's a medical term, right? Uh, that's a good point. So there is in the category of uh, graham crackers then. No, graham crackers were about counteracting the effects of. Okay. Yeah. Well, you learn I don't, something new every day. I don't, I don't see the connection. <laughs> but well, then I mean, I, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I, I don't know if uh, doctors would see the connection either, to be honest. But, uh, uh, you, know, you know, whatever. I, I'm... 
horrified to think of the scientific method and how he tested this, but, you know, mm. whatever. Yeah. Take his word for it. I mean, it's like that thing on, you know, on the Nick with with all of the, uh, you know, elixirs and everything like that. Yeah. Um, there's like a big thing, you know, like, take this. I still and, haven't seen the Nick, but I, I know I know the time period of which you speak. It's the, so uh, good. But I mean, the best part about that, because like the whole thing is they're trying to get, you know, Dr. Thackeray to, uh, you know, basically put his name on a bottle of stuff. Yeah. And he's like, what? Why? You know, like he's looking at the ingredients and then it says like it cures basically everything. Right. Yeah. And he's like, that doesn't make any sense, guys. I'm not going to put my name on this. This is ridiculous. You know, and they're like, come on. This is really popular. There's a lot of money here. Like it's it's a it's a thing which everybody wants. Dr. Pepper's brain tonic is so popular that they're serving it on uh, on you know from fountains now. Yeah. And I'm like that's what it you know and I looked it up yep. and sure enough like that is the origin of Dr. Pepper. It was a brain tonic. Yeah. That's why I'm so smart. <laughs> but does what does mr pib do then i don't know okay. i don't know i'm just I'm, uh, just I'm just curious no yeah i mean the thing is it and it's not really different now when you think about it like everybody talks about the you know these quack cures and everything you know take fish oil pills mm-hmm. and take uh put flaxseed on your your bran muffins and stuff like that it's all it's all the same thing man and it's like you know you even go back to that classic i love lucy episode where she's uh trying to sell the the medicine and it's like 90 percent alcohol and she's drunk at the end she's going they answered all your problems in this little bottle yeah like people knew people have always known that it's always been half scam man so mm-hmm. i love that it's great. If it produces delicious sodas and fortifying cereals, I am on board. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, the number one movie of the week with $22.1 million at the mm-hmm. box office and 51% positive on Rotten Tomatoes, Stargate by Roland Emmerich. Mm-hmm. The movie that started... Devlin. The Devlin Emmerich juggernaut begins here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I know that you've seen this movie before. Many, many times and even saw owned, in fact, the letterboxed director's cut in that special clamshell packaging from Fox Studios. So uh, did you see it in the theater? Oh, yes. Uh, more than once. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you really liked it? You know, I listen, it was there was a fun to this movie. There is a fun to this movie. There is a forgettableness to it, but there is also Kurt Russell, which is, you know, always great. Um but you know, it's it, it's really a great sort of it's in the vein of the old 50s sci-fi movies it's got that spunk to it and it's entertaining man i mean is there anything great and meaningful about it nope is it great cinema not really but is it good entertainment sure is yep okay all right 
I, you know, I, I was just starting to get into movies when this thing came out, and I was very much more a science fiction fan. And I was getting all of like the sci-fi magazines because I was, you know, really into Star Wars and Star Trek. That was pretty much where it began and mm-hmm. ended. But um, because of that, obviously, like Stargate was very much on my radar at this time. Yeah. And if there was anyone who it was targeted at, it was me, you know? Yeah. And yet I basically had no interest when it came out. I didn't see it in the theater. Hmm. I didn't see it for a couple of years after. And uh, it was my cousin who was like, oh, this movie's really good. You should watch it, whatever. We should watch it. And I was over at her place, and I'm like, okay, let's watch it, you know? And um, I was, like, so bored by it, like, so bored by it. Huh. I, I just wanted the thing to be over with. And at one point, she's like, ah, I need to go to the bathroom, you know, just keep keep it running. And she goes to the bathroom, and while she was gone, I started, like, fast-forwarding it as much as I could <laughs> so that I wouldn't have to watch it. So, So I watched it for the first time all the way through and um it's not nearly as bad as i remembered back in the day i i I didn't fast forward through any of it but i can't say that it's good you know it was it's very very campy but not necessarily in a fun way more in a like oh god these guys really had no money and yikes you know and i the story I don't think is good or interesting or whatever. I mean, the whole thing with Kurt Russell's backstory is ridiculous. James Spader's character is, you know, kind of dumb. I, I, I can't say that it's good. And I mean, I can't say that I was extremely entertained by it or anything. I think more than anything, I was impressed by the fact that like a movie like this got made and exists like the way it does. And I mean, it's mm. very much of its time. And I was, I was kind of uh, just in awe of its existence, but from a very distant viewpoint. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoy it. I, I think that it's a, I think it's fun. I think that it's, like I said, it's not great cinema, but it's fun I Kurt Russell can do no wrong. You put him in a movie, even if I don't like the movie, I like Kurt Russell. But in this case, I think that he and James Spader have a good enough chemistry. I like the fact that it's based on the bat s crazy conspiracy theory sort of thinking of the Eric Von Daniken crowd, Chariots of the Gods. I was like, oh, humans never could have built the pyramids. It's like, I don't know. The Egyptians had a giant empire with endless slaves that they didn't care if they died while they were building things. They probably pulled it off. Yeah, You know, like it's one of those things where it's like it plugs right into that thing that everybody loves to think about ancient cultures that they were somehow tied to aliens and communicating with aliens. And so it just indulges that sort of pulp mentality that powers a story like this. And so I think it has like the heart and the spirit of the old 1950s serials, not as... Obviously not as artistically expressed as Lucas or Spielberg or somebody like that can do it, but you know it's it's a good enough entertainment. Yeah, I'm not sure it's good enough, but um, I say it is okay. But I mean, it is weird though now 
because like doing Star Trek podcasts and everything like that, Stargate is always very much, you know, just sort of right off to the side here, right? And there's a mm-hmm. huge fan base which has basically been created by the television shows and stuff, right? Oh, yeah. So much so that, like, you know, you look when you go to, like, get this movie off of iTunes or Prime or wherever it is, it says, for one thing, on the artwork, Stargate the movie, okay? That's weird. Mm -hmm. But then also, you know, it's, like, being promoted as, like, the movie which launched... Uh, they actually have like a name for it, the movie which launched a saga or something like that, you know. Yeah. And it's like Stargate today is known as a TV show, not yes. a movie. It's like yep. the mash of sci-fi or something. But I, that's an incredibly yeah. That's that's a very apt way to put it. Yeah. So have you seen any of these shows or anything? Not one second. Yeah, not at all. I mean, like I'm, I'm intrigued by, it. and it's like, okay, you, you look at the, you look at the premise of this movie, and you say, like, turn that into a TV show, and you're like, oh, I know exactly what that is. They're gonna go to a billion different places, right? They're yeah. gonna have like weird encounters all the time. But then it's like, oh, we're doing a spinoff. It's called Atlantis. Well, what's that? You know, I mean, like, mm-hmm. I, I, so, like Atlant, I, I can see them going to Atlantis. But then making that like, what is it? The base of operations, or how does that work? I'm curious. You know, I'm curious, and because anytime that they this happens, like I think of like, oh, like conceptually knowing nothing about it other than the title, like Stargate Atlantis. I'm assuming is like the Deep Space Nine of Stargate, right? It's like some sort of weird out there concept. I'm, I'm always, I'm always curious by these television franchises where you have like a billion different things like what makes ncis new orleans different from ncis los angeles or whatever what what's the difference well one set in new orleans yeah. and the other is set in los angeles oh, i guess that's it and then and you, you got, have like, the opportunity to have crossover episodes yeah right that's true and I, I'm, I'm always up for a good crossover but like this thing, like you, you've got you know continuum, which I get the impression is kind of like the the Battlestar Galactica dark and gritty reboot or whatever. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff going on there. I mean, that f- first show, Stargate SG One, lasted like ten seasons yep. or something. That's yep. crazy. Uh, I mean, like it changed. It went from like a Showtime show to like a syndicated show i don't know what's going on in that thing but i'm super curious about it and when you look at this movie you i mean it really does feel like it's completely unrelated like roland emmerich has never seen an episode of stargate has zero interest you know what i mean like i could be completely wrong about all that but that's the impression that i got and the people who watch stargate sg1 think of Stargate, the movie, the same way that people who watch Westworld think of Westworld, the movie, you know? Yep. It's just this distant thing that happened long ago that no one really talks about, and it's this weird anomaly. But this movie was freaking huge, so huge that they turned it into a TV show, you know? So huge that it gave gave them the ability to make Independence Day. Yeah, which, you know, thank God for that, but, you know... Mm. 
Uh, Independence Day is amazing. So I, w- I wouldn't <laughs> say amazing. It is. I would say that it's better than Stargate. Yes, I'd give it that much. But okay, here. But here's another question that I have for you because, and this is where it gets weird. Like Independence Day had a special edition where they added 16 minutes, and they were like chopped in there terribly. And I was always like, "Why did they do this? What is this? It's it's so bad." And then I saw some interview with Roland Emmerich where they were talking mm-hmm. about director's cuts, and he said something like. Luckily, uh, all of my movies have had the director's cuts released in theaters originally. Yeah. Basically saying the special edition is nothing. But this movie has an extended cut, which I didn't watch. The The version which is online is the theatrical. Um, but I'm curious, like you've seen the extended cut, which mm-hmm. has since been labeled as a director's cut. So yeah. I don't know what that all means. But what 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 do you think about this uh, extended cut of Stargate? Well, there's a little bit more uh, development with the characters. Uh, there are a couple of extra scenes where you know you get to it explicitly lays out that like Kurt Russell knows more than he lets on when he first meets James Spader. You have like a scene where you see him going and seeing some like top secret stuff where it's like. You know, he's obviously been lying to Spader, which you pick up by implication, but this lays it out explicitly. Yes, in fact, Kurt Russell is not letting on everything that he knows about the Stargate uh, to James Spader at first. And but mainly, you know, it's it's just some fleshing out a little bit more character time. Uh, you know, as you well know, you know, even a handful of minutes of screen time, you know, just giving a certain scene a little bit more time to breathe the only thing that really jumps out as like not just an extended scene, but a new moment was they added that an extra moment of Kurt Russell going and walking to a top secret section and opening a door and seeing the stuff um, and having, you know, a concerned expression on his face about what, what's coming. And um, so, you know, that's the one moment that like really stands out, but uh, you know, do you really lose anything from not watching the director's cut? No, the theatrical cut is fine, but just the director's cut, just, you know, some stuff has a little bit more time to breathe. And so it's a little bit more fleshed out. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, uh, okay. I I can't say that uh, I'm going to rush out to see this director's cut, but, um, if I have to watch it again, I'll try to seek it, seek it out. I liked it enough to buy it on magnetic videotape at the time. Oh, okay. All right. So there you go. That's a pretty high endorsement. Uh, yeah. I used to be one of those compulsive buyers, if you can uh-huh. believe it. Yeah. You know you know my crusade against uh, physical media yeah. nowadays, but I, I used to have quite the movie collection. I, I would, my whole philosophy for a time, as foolish as this may sound, is that people who rented movies did not care for the tapes. So if I was likely to rent a movie so much as once or twice, I would just go ahead and buy it because I did not want to have to clean the heads on my VCR too much. I mean, at that point, you might as well just get a laser disc player, right? Well, that would just be crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I've always been sort of a big fan of the physical media, and it's hard to break away from that, you know, because you see like a fancy looking box, and it's like, I want that box. And it's like, that's kind of weird, but that's how it is, you know? And, um, yeah, I've been trying really hard to 
not do that. And and it really has gotten to the point now where like if something is coming coming out like exclusively on Blu-ray or something for whatever reason, I have to like buy the physical media. I'm like, geez, I'm gonna really gonna have to think about that because that seems like for some reason it seems like more expensive or something, even though it might not be, but just like, oh, you want me to buy a physical thing? You know? I'm always I'm always fascinated by and I'm sure that with Disney Plus and its shows, this is going to become even weirder. But I'm always fascinated by the Netflix shows that then get uh, like a physical media release. Mm-hmm. And other streaming shows that get a physical media release where I look at it and I see it on the shelf and I think to myself, but it's still there. And you're you're subscribed. Why would you buy this? as opposed to just queuing it up and watching it again. You know, like Man in the High Castle on Amazon Prime. If they were to release a Blu-ray edition, I would look at it and I would have a very hard time justifying a purchase because I saw it streaming. It's on their service still. Why would I need to own it? Yeah, I bought season one of Discovery, and I'm kind of because I think because I thought that there were a lot more special features on it than there actually were. But now I'm just like, why did I do that? That makes no sense to me. I, like every single episode would have to have commentary from everybody, from the director to the producers to the makeup guy to the craft services people. So, yeah, no, I know. I mean, part of it is you know seeing it on the shelf with all the other. Star Trek, whatever's, you know, same thing with Star Wars. There have been times, but, you know, yeah, no, I think that time has passed. So, well, I'll say at the very least, Star Wars always, each release was unique in its own way. And so it sort of justified it that way, where there was something a little bit different about each set. Um, Star Trek, I'm not as well versed in. Star Trek, I always viewed as a little bit more of a cash grab. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not necessarily sure it was any more or less of a cash grab, but they were certainly more expensive. The idea that, you know, CBS was charging like over $100 per season for this stuff is just re- absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, whatever. You know, it is what it is. So, Indeed, indeed. Yeah. All right. Well, that pretty much wraps it up, uh, Stargate. Um, I, I don't know if I would recommend it, but it sounds like you would. I would. So, okay. All right. I think it's fun. Well, next week, November 4th, there are five movies that were released. Floundering, Oleana, Double Dragon, The mm. War, mm. and Frankenstein. And we will discuss those next time. But in the meantime, John, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, you can find me as Kessel Junkie on your social network of choice, most likely Twitter or Letterboxd. And you can find me right here on the network co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast with Matthew Rushing, which drops just about every Tuesday. And Mike, where can people find you? You can find me on filmdamagepod.com doing a show called Film Damage. You can find me on trek.fm doing a show called Tracks on the Line. And you can find me soon on Talk Film Society doing a show called Bayhem. 
And you can also find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Mumbles3K. All right. Well, that's it for October of 1994. Maybe the best month in movie history. I don't know. Arguable. Uh, Yeah, for sure. But we will be back next time to uh, begin our look at November. And until then, be kind, rewind. (laughs) 